Sharon Squassoni, I direct the Proliferation Prevention Program here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And I'm very pleased to have with me today David Albright, who is the founder and president of the Institute for Science and International Security. Uh, welcome, David. Oh, good to be here. So we're going to talk a little more about transparency and nuclear weapons and fissile material. David is, uh, among other things, uh, the author of um, a really seminal book uh, dating couple decades ago, The World Inventory of Plutonium and Highly Enriched Uranium. So you've been at this for a long, long time, um, collecting data and estimating, mostly I think on the fissile material end of the spectrum. So can you talk a little bit about um, sort of what the main kind of challenges and opportunities you've faced over this long period? The biggest challenge is secrecy. I mean, it, the, just the very nature of the risk posed by plutonium and highly enriched uranium has always made them very secret subjects. And even on the civil side, uh, which is what I started on in the 1980s, it wasn't known how much plutonium countries were reprocessing or, or separating for use in civil reactors, that the major reprocessors in Europe, Japan, treated the information as, as almost top secret. And so the biggest challenge has just been to convince governments particularly um, and industry that the transparency is in their interest, that they've always resisted um, the idea that publicity is going to help them. And I think that that was the, probably the biggest secret because ultimately this government resides, this information resides in governments. And you can piece it together um, from open sources, from leaks, um, but it's never going to be as accurate as when the government starts to reveal information that, that, that either allows you to know what it is or to make many or to make uh, much better estimates. And even then, I would um, suggest that because some of the big producers of e even fissile material for civilian uses, um, their programs came out of their weapons programs. So that history of secrecy and perhaps um, lack of attention to kind of rigorous accounting has created some problems. I mean, we see that even in the United States, mm. right, with sure. getting really accurate inventories. Is that is that really possible? Well, they, certainly I agree. The weapons side... They were in a rush. Um, they didn't keep the records that, that are demanded today of civil industry. And so you, you have trouble reconstructing the total production and then the fate of all the material, and then particularly finding out how much went into waste. Um, but you have, you, you, in the United States, they, they, the, the US government decided that they would try to be open across the board and do the best job possible. Uh, in a country like France, um, they decided they would be open on the civil side and really uh, wrestle with some of these very same problems, particularly from the early days. But they decided that they would be totally secret and remain secret on the weapons side, that they didn't want people being able to estimate the size of their military HEU or plutonium stock. So, the, so there they, they viewed it as part of their deterrence strategy to have uncertainty 
in the in the estimates, which then ultimately would lead to, I, I guess, uncertainty on their nuclear potential. So the risks, you know, we spent a lot of effort in the last few years on nuclear security, right? Making sure that um, whether it's in the civil sector or in military stockpiles, that this weapons usable material, either highly enriched uranium or separated plutonium, is kept safe from, and secure I should say, <laughs> from the possibility that terrorists might gain access. Um, there's an additional reason that governments give, which is, look, if we give all this information out about our classified programs, there's the possibility we might be releasing information, not just to terrorists, but for, for proliferators, for mm -hmm. countries that might be interested in um, clandestinely producing nuclear weapons. What, how, much, um, how much do you believe those claims that we need to keep uh, that information still secret? Yeah, I, I, it is a debate. And I, I know in our estimates um, that I've done at my institute, um, there's, we've had sponsors, of, let's say from the U.S. government, from a national lab that wanted us to do national estimates, and so it, which means aggregate them. So we would you know, be French or... Armenian or whatever, British, we wouldn't break it down by facility. We, there were people in DOE headquarters that objected and said that even national estimates are too sensitive. Mm -hmm. And I think our, my argument has always been, and, and it was the lab agreed, that, that it, this is not true. I mean, it, it can be that if there's a country that only has one nuclear facility with one stockpile of HEU, which could be a research reactor, that, that maybe you want to, you could legitimately raise the question because you're identifying the location. Mm -hmm. But even there, anybody can look on the web or even in, back in the public literature prior to the internet days and say, oh, here's a research reactor running on highly enriched uranium, so there must be highly enriched uranium there. So a lot of these arguments for secrecy of the size of the stocks, I think, have collapsed. Mm -hmm. and, and really, when, when they're seriously debated, it just doesn't hold up. I mean, if it turns into a discussion of here's where this amount of plutonium is at this facility and that facility, and you're identifying where in the facility particularly, that discussion becomes much more sensitive. And I think in the U.S., that, that line is where it was drawn. I mean, they would say this is the amount of plutonium and highly enriched uranium, let's say at a, this is a former weapons site called Rocky Flats. This is how much is at Rocky Flats, um, and it was in the you know many many tons of level, and but they wouldn't tell you where within the site it was located, and uh, and and that was seen as sufficient mm -hmm. sufficient for security. And and I and I did a lot of work at Rocky Flats on um, on um, dose reconstructions. Uh, in essence, how much plutonium got out, and had to know quite a bit about their plutonium. Um, stocks and um, and the um, and when you look at the physical security of the plant, the, not knowing where it is in a vault, let's say, is is advan advantageous. But you would you would never base your security on someone not knowing that the plant has plutonium. 
would just be seen as, as completely inadequate as, a, as any kind of serious barrier to theft. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, my, my question, I think, is a little unfair because um, when you look at, at least when we're talking on the military side, the nine nuclear, the nine states that have nuclear weapons, um, they're very different, right? You have the five under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the U.S., U.K., France, Russia, and China, and then you have the others who have much smaller stockpiles, um, India, Pakistan, Israel, and North Korea. And those four countries, I think, probably have different motivations for um, and not just between them and the nuclear, the other nuclear weapon states, but each individual country has different motivations for what they want to keep secret. Mm -hmm. So Israel, arguably the most secretive, um, they have not even declared uh, a nuclear weapons program. Um, India and Pakistan are involved in... Uh, what I would call now a, a spiraling uh, arms race. Uh, they're both producing more fissile material, and they're uh, both not just modernizing their forces, but they're accruing additional potentially destabilizing capabilities. And then there's North Korea, which chooses to reveal some information, but not other kinds of information. Um, what Let's just take North Korea, since you've done mm. you've done a lot of work on all those countries, but especially North Korea. What are some of the challenges that you see in estimating their fissile material production, and then maybe some of the opportunities? Yeah, and all four of those countries do want to keep you from knowing their inventory, and so it, to, it's an investigation, and and you have to use all all sources to try to answer the questions. One of the things that made North Korea unique is it has been subjected to the NPT process as a non-nuclear weapons state. So you have a tremendous amount of information um, of their program up until the early 90s. I mean, it, they admitted some of it on plutonium separation, most believe, uh, but they provided a tremendous amount of information about their nuclear capabilities. They also opened up during the six-party process in the 2000s and made declarations about um, the size of their plutonium stock, how much plutonium was in the 2006 nuclear explosive. They said two kilograms. So it, you know, it's a mystery if that's true. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's pretty that they, interesting. Yeah. So they, so they've, they've had, they have opened up and, and, and declared more it, it, by a government. And that's really, I mean, again, you have to, most people are skeptical that two kilogram number is sufficient uh, for a bomb. Uh, of the type North Korea could build, but but who knows? And maybe it is advanced. Maybe they had weapon grade uranium in it too. So it's it. Uh, mm -hmm. um, so you do have to check if it's true. But uh, on the, on many of the plutonium um, related information, it's it's been quite helpful. Mm -hmm. And in terms of so so in the case of North Korea. There's this officially provided information and uh, some limited inspections mm -hmm. by the International Atomic Energy Agency way back when. But then there's also kind of a panoply of techniques, information that P3 
people in civil society rely on. So, right. for example, satellite imagery. Right. No, that's a very important part of it. Satellite mm -hmm. imagery, and I would add procurement information. Mm -hmm. North Korea, North Korea's nuclear programs depend quite a bit on buying overseas. Some of it is as simple as it's better, cheaper. You know, they don't have a lot of industries in North Korea, and nuclear programs rely on a lot of different um, types of equipment. And you can't build an industry around every widget in a nuclear reactor or um, a gas centrifuge plant, so you buy overseas. And, mm -hmm. and North Korea has been very good at that and not particularly opaque about its activities. So that that, that is monitored. And, and in the end, the agents have to buy from uh, companies, and those companies become a source of information the suppliers, in essence. So you get a combination of satellite imagery, procurement information. Um, it can be, you add leaks or, or statements by, by other governments. And the South Korean government regularly talks about the North Korean nuclear program. To a lesser mm -hmm. extent, the US does. So there, there, there is a fairly good picture. That picture is absent when you then talk about India, Pakistan, and Israel. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's a very different. Uh, situation. Governments, I know, spend a lot of time monitoring Pakistan. And, and Pakistan is actually, if you, if you were going to rank, rank illicit procurers, um, Pakistan would be the worst. It doesn't get as much attention. I mean, in a certain sense, for many years, it's been in the shadow of Iran, where Iran's getting all the, in a sense, the attention. But Pakistan is very active and a very active illicit buyer for its nuclear programs. And, but governments are collecting it, looking at it. And, um, and so I think in governments, they have a fairly sophisticated sense of the Pakistani stockpile of plutonium and highly enriched uranium, but they rarely will, will share it. And, you know, there have been a lot of news stories about sanctions on North Korea. So presumably, there are a lot more, there's a lot more attention by governments focused on trying to stop this illicit procurement. There's probably some attention, um, one hopes, right, that also on the question of Pakistan, but it's not under the same kind of barrage of, you know, UN Security Council resolutions. Um, most likely things are going through the nuclear suppliers group, of course, are restricted. Um, but what is, can you talk a little bit about Pakistan's uh, strategy? Is it to yeah. procure things right under the limit? Or? Well, they, they do it all. They'll procure things on the NSG list. They'll just do it illegally. And, they, and there's just ways to do it using China, for example. Mm -hmm. That China doesn't enforce its laws, so it's pretty easy to work there. It's what North Korea does, too. Mm -hmm. um, India's done it, too, to a lesser extent. But... Um, the sanctions in North Korea, um, while they appear to have been very strict, in terms of affecting its nuclear program, they haven't been that strict at all. Mm -hmm. if, if you can buy, if North Korea can buy things in China, and it could be American, German, French, um, and China does nothing about it, uh, even though it is illegal, then it, you, you can't call the sanctions effective. And that's one of the questions for China now is, are they going to enforce their laws and the sanctions to stop these? And, and, but from a 
a transparency point of view, um, I have to admit that North Korea has been a somewhat of an, an easy target because they haven't worried very much about getting caught until recently. Therefore, they don't really disguise their activities very well. I mean, if you take an Iran, um, particularly post-Snowden, um, you would see that, that they would, um, how to say this, you would, they would no longer email orders to their contractors. This, and when I say they, the, the nuclear establishment in Iran, mm -hmm. they understood that those are at risk. Um, and so you just hand carry them and you don't, or you messenger them. So instead of Natan's, the, the, the Kali Electric is the centrifuge company in Iran, instead of them emailing an Iranian trading company to buy X, Y, and Z, they would just hand carry it or messenger it or have a meeting. And, and then when that trading company goes out to buy a dual-use good, you, you lose the ability to know who is buying it. And, and dual, as you know, dual-use goods are bought for a lot of things. So the, it's, it, it's not that hard to start disguising the buyer, the true buyer of these goods. And then when you try to inter investigate, interdict, whatever you're going to do, it's harder to justify if you don't know if it's if you can't say it's Kali Electric or just some car factory. I mean, you don't want to um, build a case that, of interdiction and then find out it's it's for some purely civil application that 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 um, may or may not be allowed. But nonetheless, politically, it's hard to sustain. So there is a there's a trade-off in this that there is another type of transparency that that is a trade-off where sanctions become particularly effective, North Korea um, may just, may be much harder to see what it's up to. Yeah, it may find other ways and they find of other getting routes. around. So, you, so there is a, there, uh, it's a little sensitive in, in some ways, but there is a, a real um, loss um, if your goal is to monitor and know what's going on when the sanctions start increasing the country will take steps to hide better. And, and so you, you, you want to make sure that those sanctions are actually effective. Right. And they, and they may not be. And, and so it's a, yeah, I think that's part of the debate on North Korea is um, if you start convincing China to crack down and it's just a cosmetic crackdown, North Korea will just become more sophisticated and get what, still get its goods and there'll be less visibility. Right. Just for our listeners who may not follow Iran as closely as you or I do, um, part of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action was to put a lot more transparency onto procurement mm -hmm. in Iran. Um, I think... Most people agree that the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action is not perfect, mm. <laughs> that we got um, certain things uh, that we wanted and perhaps in other areas it was not as restrictive. Do you think that the, that the kinds of um, checks and balances in the procurement area provide co comfortable transparency? Um, it's a mixed bag. I mean, it, 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 um, Iran doesn't need much for its nuclear program. 
and um, and so it's really it's civil industry that needs these high tech dual use goods. And so the um, I think all sides have been hesitant to move very quickly in using the it's called the procurement channel mm -hmm. in, in trying to get these goods. I mean I think there's only been a, maybe six, seven, eight proposals so far in over a year. And some mm -hmm. of those were for uranium exports to Iran. So I think it... it um, it's not much at all. That's not a no. vibrant And so I think it, there's a lot of... And there's also a fundamental question about the system where, and particularly if, it, if, if the number of proposals for exports picks up, if you have, you have essentially 50 supplier countries. Uh, forget the transit countries. Just 50 countries that are part of the NSG, roughly. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and those countries are being monitored by the P5 plus 1. And there's questions whether they, it can really work. I mean, are the, all those countries going to send in proposals? Can the P5 plus one, in, and they have really 20 days to decide, can they credibly decide if this is a legitimate order? So there are some questions whether the, the channel itself can be maintained if, if the number of proposals go up. Mm, so, mm -hmm. it, it, and that has to, it's one of the challenges for the Trump administration. They have to fix this. I mean, there's ways to fix it. Mm -hmm. um, the fortunate thing is, is it hasn't been used very often so far. That's great. Well, thank you so much. Okay. It's been a terrific conversation. Okay, thank you.